0: Welcome to Conversations with the Best Minds in Real Estate, a podcast hosted by RCL Co. Real Estate Advisors, the show that brings you illuminating interviews with today's most relevant and motivating leaders throughout all corners of the real estate sector. Each episode will feature different masters in real estate, revealing challenging lessons they've learned, their secrets to success, and opinions regarding the state of the market.
1: This is Taylor Mammon, Senior Managing Director and Director of Institutional Advisory Services of RCLco Real Estate Advisors. If you're a regular listener to our podcast, then you know that since 1967 RCLco has been the first call for real estate developers, investors, the public sector and non-real estate companies seeking strategic and tactical advice regarding property investment, planning and development. Welcome to the latest episode of Conversations with the Best Minds in Real Estate. Today, I am talking to Jonathan Roth and Justin Kennedy, managing partners and co-founders of 3650 Capital. 3650 Capital is a balance sheet lender dedicated to long-term value-added relationships, maintaining relationships with sponsors and their intermediaries by holding each CRE loan, CRE, that's Commercial Real Estate Loan, through maturity and servicing them actively. Jonathan and Justin, thanks so much for taking the time to be a part of our podcast series.
2: Our pleasure to be with you. Absolutely our pleasure.
1: So I first met Justin in the context of another company in which he's involved, uh, Grass River. Justin, what is Grass River and how do you split your time between it and 3650?
3: Uh, Grass River is our South Florida development entity. Um, We're particularly involved in multiple family, retail repositioning, uh, and uh, adaptive reuse of urban properties. Um, we started that to continue really the, uh, let's call it, muscle building process of having some real real estate, on the ground real estate capability to enter into a project um, at any point in its life cycle with people that have experience in leasing, construction, TIs, whatever it is that needed to be done um, in throughout the capital stack that we were ready to have the talent in our four walls um, which really has become the mantra of kind of what we see as the 3650 brand is having within our four walls all of the capabilities set of the full life cycle of real estate and so we started with the development company because when uh, our other partner, Toby Cobb, and I had, had uh, sold uh, the entity LNR Partners um, and LNR um, property to uh, Starwood Capital, uh, we had a non-compete for a couple of years and uh, needed to do something other than the lending and loan servicing business. And so uh, we thought that building a development company would be a great, uh, great outlet for that. And that, that was where Grass River um, and its South Florida property business uh, was more. Through which we met you, Taylor, which is one of the best things that we did
1: uh, <laughs> through the company. Very, very, very kind. Thank you. But, but at least that, yes, absolutely. And then I met Jonathan later and honestly can't recall how, but suspect we were introduced by a mutual client in Calsters. Do you recall Jonathan?
2: Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, I had the pleasure of meeting Gotti Kaufman, um, uh, through and with Calsters, uh, who is a, uh, a big supporter of ours. Um, and, uh, Uh, Gaddy introduced me to you. And then it turned out, oh, well, you knew Justin and Toby. So it's, you know, it was, as is the case most of the time in, you know, our industry, which is real estate, um, you know, it's six degrees of separation or even, uh, even closer than that. And uh, it's about the relationship. So yeah, we uh, don't go back as far as you and Justin, but we, uh, we certainly have a little bit of history.
1: Yeah great. Well, in any case, it has been a pleasure to get to know both of you. and I thought it would be great for our best minds podcast listeners to get to know you as well. In particular, I'd love to focus on your role as lenders, as we haven't had any of these on our role, on our podcast previously and what that seat, that role in the industry has taught you about real estate. Uh, some of the lessons you've learned from your fascinating careers, which we'll talk about in just a moment, and how you manage a firm with not one, not two, but three managing partners, and what lessons that has taught you about leadership. So how does that sound?
2: That sounds great. Perfect.
1: All right, great. So so maybe just to get us warmed up. Um, Jonathan, if you wouldn't mind starting off and giving us a brief uh, description of your professional work history, how you've gotten to where you are today, and then I'll ask Justin
2: the same question. Uh, on the coattails of others. <laughs> uh, now, um, you know, I started my career um, as a uh, as a lawyer, and when I graduated law school, I joined the firm of Loeb & Loeb as a real estate transactional lawyer, where I focused primarily on um the representation of lenders. So, uh, you know, I was a creditor's rights lawyers and lawyer. And when I started the practice of law, I was in the mid to late eighties. Um, and the world was, uh, you know, was quite robust in the world of real estate. There was a lot of activity. So my, you know, my role as a young lawyer was documenting a lot of very positive transactions. Um, as we, went into the 90s um as many of your listeners uh you know will will remember uh the real estate economy took a turn and we went from doing all sorts of positive um you know lending activity to workouts restructures and then ultimately i became a student of the bankruptcy code because that's where many of the uh, you know assets and loans ended up um, I uh, stayed in the practice of law um, for a number of years. I made partner at the firm and as soon as I made partner, that's the day that I literally, uh, you know, several weeks later I left and I joined what was then a very small um, registered investment advisor uh, named Canyon Partners. And I joined the firm when it was, uh, you know, it had less than 500 million of assets under management. And I joined to help build a real estate discipline. Um, and I was at Canyon for just about 19 years and we proudly, uh, or I'm proud to say that we built a number of distinctive platforms, uh, focused, you know, across the capital stack from equity to debt. And, you know, after about 19 years, um, I made the decision to leave and I left because I wanted to build my own thing. And my own thing was a, fully integrated real estate platform that wasn't tethered to a, uh, you know, another financial platform. And um, I also knew as much as I I was very clear on what I wanted to build, I knew I didn't want to do it by myself. And so um, it, my departure from Canyon coincided with uh, Justin and Toby's, uh, the burn off of their non-compete in the world of lending and they had built, as we just learned, um, Grass uh, River properties, and it was a perfect opportunity to take this set of, as Justin referred to, as the human capital. You know, these individuals—a a firm that had, um, you know, a wealth of knowledge from ground-up construction to, re, you know, development, redevelopment, leasing, management—all those things that one uh, needs to have to be a good investor in real estate, whether it's debt or equity. And so we all looked at each other and said, you know, let's build the perfect platform. And that was, you know, how 3650 came to be. Uh, And that was, that was several years ago. So, you know, if you look back, my professional career, I've had, you know, this is my third job, if you will.
1: great thank you and uh, justin again same question for you Br- bring us uh, up to the present in your uh, in in your work experience and history
3: okay well um uh, i kind of knew i wanted to be a real estate guy from pretty young age um, and so uh came out i got out of college and went immediately to work for and and interestingly just Jonathan, Toby, and I are all from Northern California, um, and so uh, I went to work um, back in Sacramento, where I'm from, um, at uh, one of the larger land development companies in uh, in the state, um, and worked pretty closely with uh, on a couple of large projects particularly up in the Roseville area. Um, uh, Moved down to work um, when Peter Bedford, Bedford Properties acquired Kaiser Land. Um, Moved to work for Peter to help with the Northern California Land Portfolio of Kaiser. Um, And uh, in a little bit of an ill-timed, as Jonathan described, the transition uh, in the RTC era, um, went out on my own in 1989, um, assuming that the rest of the national problems would never come to California. Of course, they did on August 2nd, 1990, um, the day uh, Saddam invaded Kuwait. Um, and uh, that day, I realized, hey, listen, uh, this uh, land program, the land investment program we put uh, put in place is probably going to be not as... Uh, good project as we thought and uh, turned out it was okay. All the investors got all their money back, but uh, the, I also started doing some work as a consultant for RTC, the RTC on some land deals. I met some guys from Goldman Sachs LA office, um, They asked if I would be interested in talking to some people in New York about uh, working in creating these new kinds of bonds the RTC was doing. And so went to work at Goldman um, on the trading desk in New York, moved to New York, Um, eventually became the head of the trading of that product, the uh, CMBS CMBS bonds. Uh, We built our origination platform. Um, The great thing about that was that that I had a little bit of an advantage coming into it because I had been um, in the development business and done commercial property and, and um, got some workout experience in the RTC era um, and learned a few of the lessons you talked about earlier um, at that pretty early age. Um, we went on, we had the number one lead table business at Goldman um, and then got an offer to go and build a new business for pretty much from the ground up over, uh, Deutsche Bank and um, so in 1998 went to Deutsche Bank and um, uh, started what became one of the world's largest CRE finance platforms um, over time. Uh, we had a thousand employees uh, in 2007 um, and so that that was um, a, a, quite an experience. Um, uh, from being a in the position we were at, at Deutsche, where we, on our trading desk, had everything from um, loan participations, bank loan participations, um, to derivatives markets covering real estate, um, that we perceived that the markets were changing um, and that we were getting into an over-levered point. Um, and about 2005 started to. Um, think about what, the, what, what might happen in the markets. And because pos- we were able to position ourselves in a way that uh, Deutsche had a very favorable outcome um, through the financial crisis. Um, and, uh, and that was uh, set us up for, um, one, helping a lot during the recovery um, with the government programs, um, which kind of gave us the idea of where the market was going to go. Um, in terms of uh, transitioning, um, and we'll talk about that in a minute, but um, the, the, in the midst of that opportunity got the, um, or in the midst of that, got the opportunity to become, with my kind of longtime partner at Deutsche Bank, Toby Cobb, um, the co-CEOs of the of LNR Properties. Um, LNR for those that know was the largest um, at the time was the largest special servicer of CMBS deals. It was also a national development company and, and was additionally also the largest loans, primary loan servicer and special servicer in Europe as well. Um, and so um, had quite the uh, quite an operations um, there that uh, really needed to be. Uh, adjusted um, after the financial crisis. Um, we did a complete um, debt restructuring, um, and, which turned out uh, extremely well. Over the next three years, um, we built a bunch of new businesses, completely repositioned the firm, and um, uh, were able to s- uh, sell the company um, for a significant, significant return to our investor group. Um, to Starwood Capital in 2013. Um, as you mentioned, that was when we started, uh, pretty much the next day is when we started uh, Grass River. And uh, then, as Jonathan mentioned, uh, as we started to think about the debt business, we were fortuit- had the fortuitous... Uh, um, occasion to meet each other at this perfect time um where we kind of had exactly the same same idea in mind and uh and share many of the same investment principles and you know how we needed to the firm we wanted to build and that was 3650 so that's the that's the story great thank you
1: it, it occurs to me in both of your stories that the RTC era, the crisis that was occurring in real estate and the national economy at the time was a pivotal moment in in both of your careers. And uh, we're likely in another pivotal moment uh, going through the COVID-19 crisis and economic downturn. Um, How are you viewing this current crisis in your own personal and professional development, having been through others in the past that find at least the next decades of your career. Jonathan, do you mind taking that one first?
2: Yeah, no, no, that's a, it's a, it's a great question uh, to which there are, you know, it's a multifaceted, um, you know, response, but I would say first and foremost, you know, you learn, um, and I, I try to impart this upon younger folks these days, but you learn so much more in your life um, from the mistakes you make and the mistakes that other people make versus, Uh, when things are just, you know, going grand and, you know, the, you know, the belief, you know, that the trees grow to the sky and the music will never stop. Well, you know, history teaches us that, you know, the music always stops. It's just a question of when. And, you know, the, what the RTC did for me as a young lawyer, it identified very clearly um, to me that those lenders that did everything within their own four walls in terms of analyzing and assessing any particular real estate opportunity, they always did better. The outcome was always a more, it was a better outcome for them versus the group of real estate lenders. And, and, you know, in that, you know, moment, it was, you know, it was uh, the savings and loan industry. Um, Those participants that outsourced everything, that didn't know that their borrower, that didn't understand the underlying dynamics or fundamentals of the real estate, fared far worse than those that, that had the human capital within their own four walls. And it was that experience and watching, you know, the human behavior element of real estate investing that informed me as a young lawyer going into a mature lawyer, then leaving the practice of law to build a fully integrated real estate platform at Kenya. And my experience through times of of distress, whether it be RTC, whether it be the Russian, um, you know, uh, the venture debacle, you know, Russian crisis, or the tech, the bursting of the tech bubble, um, or the global financial crisis, every time we go into a crisis, there are some pretty consistent patterns that emerge and one of them is just you know it always amazes me how um folks that and this is not to disparage anybody it's just it's a different way of building a business but you know the use of leverage on leverage is you know oftentimes just you know blows up when there is a dislocation in the capital markets and so you know the pattern that you know that i've always seen in times of dislocation, is that leverage not that is not perfectly matched uh, with the underlying asset tends to work uh, against you in a very material way when there's you know when there's a dislocation. So, you know, I would say, are there similarities today during the COVID uh, you know pandemic? For sure, we see the same firms blowing themselves up that we saw during the global financial crisis. It's just you know it's a decade plus or minus later. Um, And you know, and what I, what I would also just add, and I said this a minute ago, but it bears, you know, repeating for emphasis is that what we do as um, you know, as real estate investors, lenders, owners, operators, is as much about the underlying real estate as it is a study in human behavior. And it's, that is why, you know, we call ourselves 3650. So if we lend to you, one of our product is a, you know, 10 year fixed rate product If we lend to you for 10 years for 3650 days, we're your relationship. So from day one, we originate the loan, you know, to you, we structure it, we, you know, we, we underwrite it, and then we hold it on our balance sheet and we service it for the life of the loan. And, again lessons learned if you have a relationship with your borrower from day one when things get tough and that you know can come in any different form it can be a global pen it could be a pandemic or it can be a tenant bankruptcy but when things get tough having that relationship with your borrower being able to sit across the table and tackle those real issues as opposed to getting to know one another and you know, getting through that human behavior element where there's, you know, there might be a little distrust. We get right to the point. We have the ability to get right to the point because we have the relationship. So lots of lessons learned. um, But, uh, you know, I think, you know, over time as we all get a bit older and uh, you know, there's, there are patterns that, that emerge, you know, every time. Thanks Jonathan.
1: And as we were preparing for this, recording you you mentioned a a, um, an anecdote that i think perfectly describes the intersection between real estate and human behavior and um and and also the intersection between uh human behavior and economics how the how the deal actually turns out and i want to come back to that in, in just a moment but first justin kind of the same the same question to you which is again you know how have crises shaped not just your career, but also your, 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 your professional um, point of view, you know, who, who, and who you are as a person?
3: Uh, the RTC for anybody that was a real estate person, real estate professional during that time was a searing experience that you know, as was a commercial real estate focused crisis um, yeah, Obviously driven by the SNLs and the over 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 and mismatch leverage um, that they had used to uh, to fund the you know the bubble that burst kind of serially across the country from let's uh, call it the late 80s into the early 90s, um, and that being a a. a, a let 's call it five year uh, five year out person during that process um, particularly being an entrepreneur was something that you don't forget in terms of care in your use of leverage um, after that point in time um, and so the, that focus and particularly as Jonathan mentioned the the, the very Clear focus always on what are the terms of that relative to the liquidity of an asset uh, is a critical mistake that seems to, um, as again Jonathan said, builds up um, each time. You know, in the in the period prior to these crises occurring, um, and so that at the same time, I think that you know, Kevin Warsh, the former uh, Fed governor, had a great quote where he said. Uh, it, if you've seen one financial crisis you've seen one financial crisis um, yeah. it, that the RTC Russian debt crisiscom the 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 GFC and now the uh, coronavirus um, the that each of them have similarities um, that go to this over leveraged um, mismatched debt um, triggering uh, Triggering illiquidity and uh, problems in the mar- and, and dislocation in the markets. At the same time, that the underlying, particularly this time, and, uh, I'm familiar uh, with the with the, what is the four most dangerous words. It's different this time. Um, there is a fundamental difference this time around. That um, particularly in retail um, assets and in hotel assets, um, that there was an oversupply of those assets going into the crisis and that there is an economic um, obsolescence that's going to uh, affect a significant number of properties, particularly in those asset classes, but it's also going to affect office, uh, it's going to affect older warehouses, um, and that that that, that we have come into a period of rapid change. And that real estate has been forced by this crisis to catch up with, um, let's call it, the reality of that change much faster than it would have had to otherwise. And so that, you know, I think for retail, much of this was already, let's call it, in the economic progression of what was fated to occur. Um, All that just got accelerated by the the virus uh, pandemic. And that is, uh, I think that is a different, uh, a different thing that we're seeing here. It's not, there's no amount of low rates from the Fed and liquidity programs from the Fed that are going to save, uh, let's call it, uh, the sh- that, that bottom tier of shopping centers. Because um, there's, there's, there's not an economic use for them as retail um, as retail properties, maybe I'll, hopefully many will get reused as others, as other purposes. But I think this is a different factor that we have not seen in fast crises.
1: Great, thank you, thank you, Justin. So, so Jonathan, as I hinted a moment ago, um, I think you have a good anecdote that describes or, or really illustrates the value of what you described as the importance of being a student, not just of real estate, but of but of human behavior as well. So. Would would you mind sharing that uh, that story about one of your uh, one of your loans?
2: Uh, sure, and this goes back a number of years. Uh, you know, before the global financial crisis, kind of leading up to it, uh, we had made a loan uh, to a a developer who, you know, had built a, a beautiful portfolio of assets, and sort of the culmination of his career, if you will, was to own. And operate a hotel and casino uh, in Las Vegas, and so we empowered the um, this gentleman to acquire the land, re entitle it for you know thousands of, of rooms and you know more square footage uh, in in casino space. And um, as he was about to go to the market for a significant construction loan, uh, the world started to turn, and his um, you know his the outlook, you know, dimmed for him significantly, and you know, we had made a non-recourse loan. Uh, so, you know, as a non-recourse lender, we're looking to the underlying collateral. Uh, as and you know, as you know, we're adults, and if we make a mistake on our on the value proposition, that's on us. That's not on the borrower. Um, and in this particular case, as the world started to go uh, south. Um, the borrowers, n- the number of options available to the borrower to help it, um, himself, uh, you know, decreased as well. And it got to a point where, notwithstanding um, our efforts to uh, figure out a way to um, extend the the loan facility, uh, you know, have more capital come in, whether from the borrower or from another source, all those, as time went on, all those options sort of uh, left. and. The borrower was given advice by counsel to file bankruptcy. In other words, to, you know, do something definitive and affirmative to stop the lender from exercising the lender's remedies. And keep in mind, and I I said earlier in this um, program that, you know, part of how the reason why we built 3650 the way we did was... To create an infrastructure where we can create a direct relationship with our borrowers. So in this case, you know, I had met the borrower, you know, on day one, worked with the borrower on structuring the loan, and worked with the borrower on trying to find a, finding a, an elegant solution to give the borrower more time. We couldn't do it. The borrower is given advice to file bankruptcy. And I kept telling him, "Don't do it! Don't do it!" Because you remember, you signed, you know, a non-recourse carve-out guarantee that it said, if you file bankruptcy, the whole loan becomes personal recourse to, to you, and everything that you've worked so hard for in your life gets put on, you know, one deal. So, uh, notwithstanding my uh, my you know words of wisdom, borrower filed bankruptcy, and I was really disappointed uh, because I you know I felt like we had the 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 the, the bargain that we had struck was we would take the risk on the real estate. And if, and if things didn't go the right way, that was on us, but the borrower would never stand in the way of us exercising remedies. And so when the borrower filed bankruptcy, I, I took it personally, which is not, is never a good thing to do. Um, but I did it cause that's just who I am. And I called for a meeting and at the meeting, you know, I was represented by council and I had all my colleagues and, and the borrower was represented by counsel, and he had his colleagues, and you know everybody you know sat down, and the lawyers took their positions, and after that, I I said, you know, gosh, it's it, we got to take a step back. First of all, Mr. Borrower, I mentioned his first name. How are you? How's your family? You know, how are your kids? How, you know, and you know, I was really genuinely concerned because this was a moment in time where this gentleman was going through extreme. Pressure, and he he did something so significant by filing bankruptcy. He put his whole life, you know, uh, economic status at risk. And I said, you know, how's how's everything going at home? And gosh, when you're when you're with the, you know sitting at the dinner table at night, when you talk to your, your your kids, your boys, about you know what you you know what daddy's doing at the office, how do you describe it? And you know, he said, oh, it's tough. It's you know going through a tough thing. And I just I just have a question. It's like I, we we made a non-recourse loan and it was, you know, we, we understood what we were getting into, and I know you understood what you were getting into. How do you explain to your kids that you're now fighting us? How do you, What's the dialogue around that? And he looked at me and he said, and he, he just went blank and he asked for everybody to leave the room and it was just, he and I left in the room and he started to sob. And he, and, I, and he said, you know, Jonathan, I've never really thought about it in the context that you just presented it. I made a promise to you that if I couldn't pay the loan back, the real estate, you know, would would go to the lender. And I've breached that promise. And I, in thinking about your question, I don't think I could look my kids in the eye and tell them why I filed bankruptcy. And so after that, he called. everybody got called back in the room and he looked at his lawyers and he said, please dismiss this bankruptcy. We should have never filed it. And everybody was, of course, dumbfounded and like, what, what did I say to them? Like, you know, you know. But the point of all that is, is that what we do is um, it impacts lives. And it's, that doesn't mean we're curing cancer. It doesn't mean we're sending you know, you know, people to Mars, but we change lives. We, we empower people to fulfill their dreams, whether it's to own and operate a casino, or to build a multifamily project or just to own a you know a corner retail shop and you know there are all different forms of capital and you know we happen to be a non recourse lender and and so having that relationship with the borrower really informs us on the front end and empowers us through the life of the loan to you know to make good decisions and to you know in, improve our outcomes and you know, if you think of it like this, as a lender, our very best outcome is that the loan is repaid and we get our interest rate. That's it. That's as good as it gets. So we try to do everything we can on the front end to make sure that we understand the lay of the land, certainly understand the real estate, and of equal importance, understand to whom we are lending. And so that's, uh, you know, it's a long-winded story, but it does speak to, to, you know, who and what we are in terms of how we think about relationships.
1: Yeah, I I love that story. I, I, and one of the reasons why is because it it humanizes what we do in in a powerful way. I think oftentimes as as investors or analysts or consultants, we 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 you can't put the human element into a model, and so we don't necessarily think about it. But it is so important to what we do. And in in the end, the the human decisions. Um, uh, they have a, have a big impact on the outcomes that we have, and human decisions are impacted by pride and emotion and uh, all sorts of aspirations and baggage that we have that that, that cannot be modeled in in anybody 's analysis
2: uh, well well said uh, well said
1: yeah so uh, i and i'd love to to dig in a little more since I think most of our listeners are probably equity investors um, and um, would, would love to hear what lessons being lenders has taught you about equity investing. Um, it, you've also both been equity investors as well. So what, what lessons would you describe to them? Um, you know, n- not just to have better relationships with their lenders, but to be better investors in the end as well.
3: Well, I think that the the one experience of being a lender um, that that you know, has transferred for us over into the equity side is that you're as a lender, you're always really scared of debt, um, and so that the that going through the stories that Jonathan said, and you know, all of us have a really very just a, because of the times that uh, we started in the market, and because of the events that we've been through, have a lot of workout um, history behind us. And you know, seeing the the seeing the leverage ending up being the problem um, for so many transactions where the, you know, the the location is great, the development plan's great, the leasing plan you know, is good um, and is gonna be successful over the long run, but a mismatched piece of debt uh, it, it, debt borrowing uh, ends up cutting the business plan short in, the, in, in a volatile period of time. And so that matching term and having a lender, um, as Jonathan describes, that's able to work through the problem and to address it in real time um, with a principal perspective, I think is vastly important. Um, yeah, you know, one of the things that you know, we comment to borrowers on is that you know watching the failure of the lenders from the rtc, RTC snls to the firms that failed during the the gfc um, that the borrower is is hugely negatively impacted by that that you know, in a, that organization's inability to fund or its inability to come to a a, a reasonable workout plan for the asset um, through the troubled time and that choosing a lender that is that has the resources and doesn't slice and dice the capital stack and outsource. Um, outsource the responsibility for servicing the loan and asset managing, asset managing through you know, the issues that inevitably come up is hugely important to you know, the, the stability through crisis of real estate investments. Dodd-Frank, it, you know, in its, let's call it, overall plan, let's make sure the banks don't mess us up again. Um, was good plan, except that it created some other ways what the banks messed us up again, but it wasn 't the bank 's fault <laughs> so yeah. the, hopefully that 's clear it 's I mean, a little esoteric but um, that uh, yeah. the, 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 that is um, you know an incredible focus but i I, I do think that you know I, we're hearing from inside some of the pension organizations that you know as well if not even better than we do that yeah, everybody wants to do debt, right? And that, particularly debt for real estate, right, is is not something that should be done by debt guys, right? It, it needs to be done by real estate guys because the only way to control risk is by, let's let's say, you know, picking which ones not to do because you're an experienced real estate guy. Right. And anybody that tries to do this with a model, and I, I don't know, you know, you know, it, I, I hear all the time, oh, yeah, there's a guy that's got an, uh, an AI app that's going to do real estate. It's like, yeah, good luck with that. The move by the, by the pension capital to get into the debt space makes a huge amount of sense and it was essentially the door that was opened by Dodd Frank. And it was yeah. done intentionally. But it obviously got filled with mortgage REITs and other kind of you know, leverage vehicles um, that that were not really suited to stable performance in this idiosyncratic asset class.
2: Yeah, and, and I, I would just you know add to that that you know over the course of uh, my career, um one of the single greatest sources of opportunities for our shorter term, you know, bridge product has been, was every time Lehman blew itself up. And, you know, it's because when, when a lender, you know, can no longer honor its commitments to its borrowers or would be borrowers, you know, there's typically a, you know, a ripple effect. And that borrower maybe is under contract with hard, you know, hard purchase money uh, up or, you know, has some other use for the proceeds that you know we're supposed to come in, and and so it's you know lenders always re you know, <laughs> those that blow up. You know, the the people and the institutions they you know they they figure out ways to reformulate themselves and come back and um, and but borrowers oftentimes it's a you know it's a career-ending event when they you know they line align themselves with it with a you know with a lender or an institution that can no longer honor its commitments and it's, so it's profoundly, um, uh, you know, has a profound negative impact. And, you know, so I would say that, you know, if I, if I look through the lenses, uh, that, you know, I do as a lender and I, you know, I say, how would that inform me as equity? It's like really understand who your lender is, how they're capitalized, uh, number one, and never, 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 never underestimate, um, the number of things that can go wrong at any given time. You know, there's, there's. I applaud developers because, and I believe, and I, you know, I know this is being recorded. So, I believe that developers should make as much money as humanly possible because the amount of risk that a developer takes from acquiring an asset, planning, building, leasing, doing whatever, whatever it takes to create that value, developers deserve the reward at the end of the day. But the reality is. That stuff happens along the way, and if you if you don't have that relationship with your capital provider, or you don't anticipate the many things that go wrong, they will end up, and you know they will bite you. And so, you know, the overuse of leverage always bites. You know, whether it's you're using it as a lender or a or, or a, a developer, um, you know, it always comes back to bite unless it's properly structured. And and so lot of lessons to be learned through the through the lenses of a lender
1: thank you those those are great responses one of the things that we've been talking about with our client base is um particularly since the beginning of this current crisis we're going through is that they should have know your lender programs just like the lenders have know your borrower programs (laughs) you know where (laughs) lenders are really in the last few years, have have spent a lot of time really kind of trying to cut through all the entities and so on to know who their borrowers are. Um, borrowers should have the same level of diligence regarding who's who's lending for them. Where's their capital coming from, you know, it's, when it all comes down to
2: it. I totally agree with that.
1: Yeah, so K- K-Y-L in addition to K-Y-B. <laughs> right. so, so maybe maybe shifting gears a little bit, would love to spend some time talking about leadership. And, and my, my lead-in question to this um, has to acknowledge the fact that 3650 Capital um, has three managing partners. And I'd love to understand how that works. What do you all bring to the table and how uh, in, in a... In a in a country at least where many companies have a buck stops here kind of leader, how the fact that there are three of you that are leading an organization gives you a unique advantage.
2: Justin, you wanna tackle that? Sure. Um, that I think each of us
3: approaches uh, really every situation that we've had to date as partners from a bit of a different perspective, and that you know that each of us knows where the other's strength lies. Um, you know, I tend to, for instance, be more uh, let's call it withdrawn um, in, in thinking about kind of where our strategies are going, um, where markets are going, you know, what's happening in the economy, um, and. It, Jonathan and Toby tend to be more out in the markets um, talking to to borrowers, talking to our investors. Um, I talk to our investors a lot as well, but I rarely talk to the borrowers. Um, At the same time, um, I think that Jonathan and Toby, while both good at um, talking to the world, that um, Toby spends a lot of time with our um, operations um, and, and, you know, across our servicing platform, across, the, um, across our lending and origination platforms, um, that, you know, the people, the administrative stuff, um, and Jonathan, it does a lot of work with, um, with our investors. Um, and so um, the, the is, um, that that is, that division of responsibilities and you know, having a pretty good sense of, you know, what each of us are best at, has been um, has been pretty effective so far, um, you know. At least for Toby and I, we've been kind of doing this um, inside, Mister inside, Mister outside um, thing for about um, let's see, twenty years now. And so uh, that is, uh, that it had been very effective for us. Um, and you know, adding Jonathan in with his um, with with his kind of different perspective coming from being a lawyer. Um, and coming from being um, you know, having um, institutional investors, where we had come from, the more the capital markets um, side of the of the of the fence, um, that that it's been a very good, let's call it mix of talents, and 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 in that, um, not as hard as one might think um, to uh, create. Uh, let's call it, uh, affirmative directions and make good decisions.
2: And, and I would just, I would add to that, that, you know, real estate, so we have a national, um, you know, platform. We have offices across the country. Um, it's also the case that I am based in Southern California. Toby's uh, in New York and Justin is in Miami where our firm is headquartered. And it really empowers us as a as a firm to you know react very quickly to any um, you know opportunity that presents itself because we're not that far away. Either we get in a car or get on a plane. And real estate being you know an idiosyncratic asset class where no single piece of real estate is like another. Um, you know you want to get up, you want to show up and look at it. And having you know senior management. Uh, in close proximity is a really powerful tool and it's also just to reiterate what Justin um, said it's you know we come to the um, to the table as three partners with much different backgrounds and experiences and it is those experiences that you know lots of lessons learned in our in our respective careers and again you know as I, I, I led with earlier when I left, my former firm, it was because I wanted to build something that really took into account and took advantage of a career of, you know, lessons learned. And um, amongst the three of us, um, none of us are driven, you know, I suppose it's, you know, we're all driven by ego at some level, but we're not, none of us are, are that individual that needs to have the limelight or it's we, what gets what, what, Gives us um, a sense of satisfaction is doing what we do at the highest level of integrity and of execution, and empowering younger people to build their careers and build not only you know learn um, you know uh, what it takes to to be a good um, you know investor or good lender, but also to you know to build net worth and to empower them to go on and to be you know future leaders and at this stage in our respective careers, that's really important because, you know, part of what, you know, um, you know, I had when I was a young, you know, professional is I had, you know, many mentors and that somehow, that feels like it's getting lost in today's world. And so at 3650, not only, you know, do we believe that we're operating at the highest levels, but we also believe, and it's really important to us to groom uh, the you know the future leaders in our industry. Great so how, how do you do that?
1: And I guess uh, aligned with that what what advice do you have for those that are just entering the real estate industry and aspiring to the successes that you've had as as lenders, as investors, as well as leaders in the industry.
2: So uh, I would just say, you know, first thing, when I was a young lawyer the senior managing partner of the firm, you know, called me into his office. And, you know, after I got done, you know, you know, perspiring, cause I was nervous. Why was I being asked to go there? Um, you know, he, he posed the question to me. He says, do you know why this is the single greatest position you could have ever taken out of law school? And, uh, you know, I was like thinking for trying to think of the, the right answer. And, you know, he led me down a path, but he eventually said, look, if you represent lenders you have to understand everything the owner of that real estate has to understand and more because not only do you have to understand you know the the real estate how it's positioned how it's going to be leased how it's going to be you know this or that you need to understand also the financing structure and how that loan is going to fit into the capital stack and and so as a Real estate, you know, uh, as a lender's lawyer, it was a um, way for me to get educated about the full spectrum of, you know, everything there is to know about real estate. And so, you know, for somebody coming out of, uh, you know, undergraduate or even graduate school in whatever form, you know, to the extent that there is an opportunity to work for a lender, um, I think it's wildly Powerful and wildly informative uh, to a career in whatever part of real estate you want to then go You know you can stay as a lender or you can go off and do equity, but having the knowledge base um, as a um, As a lender is wildly informative and powerful. The other thing is and I said it earlier but it's just during times like this, you know, we're recording this, uh, you know, this podcast um, from our respective residences, uh, because we're sheltering in place during a pandemic. Um, and for some, and I've heard this a lot over the last, you know, several months, it's pretty, it's a pretty scary time for young people that um, don't necessarily have the guidance of a, of a mentor, or somebody that has lived through, um, you know, uh, downturns. And I, you know, look, I, I'm, I'm you know, close to 58 years old. I've never lived through a pandemic, and this is you know a lot of these issues. I've never had to work from home for any extended period of time, uh, but you know you adapt and you evolve. And what this teaches us is that we can get a lot done. We're making loans, we're closing loans, and we're all still, except for our you know our core staff, accounting and otherwise in our you know in our headquarters. But you know most of us are are working from home, and we're doing it very efficiently. And so You know, be nimble um, and, uh, you know, never, never fear the unknown, just embrace it because it's, there's always going to be that unknown and, and surround yourselves, you know, with people that are willing to take the time to impart wisdom and to teach. It's really important if you're starting your career that way.
1: Great. Thank you. What do you think, Justin? What what advice do you give somebody starting their career in real estate?
3: That... As Jonathan said, the the experience you get from seeing the volume of deals that you see as a lender is is definitely a a great place to try and start. Um, that said, I to the one of the people early in my career um, that was very focused on training Peter Bedford. Um, Peter wanted everybody. To start in property management, and so that understand how the cash flows of the property work, understand the 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 needs of how you keep your property attractive to tenants and competitive in the market, um, and starting from that perspective. Um, starting also at a brokerage firm where you're again seeing a lot of um uh, it, that was my very first real estate job was it, it was a uh, direct real estate job was data bank at cold Will banker commercial uh the uh, as a summer guy and so um that that uh that that learning the basics of how it of, of how the asset class works from a cash flow perspective, I think are the, is the key to really having a you know, let's call it a flexibility and um, and transferability across let's call it market market environments. And so, if you, if you understand how the assets work and how and how the cash flows, you know, oftentimes are very are very sensitive. Right, I mean, one of the things with hotels is that they have very very high operating expenses relative to revenue um, compared to other asset classes, and so um, that going through and understanding that as a banker, as a loan, as a as a as a property manager, as a loan servicer um, is uh, is and getting that basic understanding is really critical, um, and so um, that is uh, I, I think it has always been very helpful to me. Um, Having started in the business, um, when I showed up on the Goldman Sachs trading desk, and I was a guy that had actually done um, real estate property management, um, that doesn't sound like a very, it doesn't sound like a very glorious thing. And maybe a lot of other people on the trading desk didn't think that it was, but it meant that I knew things about real estate that other guys didn't. And that was, uh, that helped me, you know, in climbing the ladder there, um, and has really never gone away so uh, as an advantage. So I think that that is really important.
1: That, that's great advice. And then how at 3650, are you training and mentoring future leaders of, of the company and likely the industry? What, what advice, what activities are you engaged in to help them on that segment of their career progression?
2: So, Um, we spend a fair amount of time making sure that, um, everybody is, is partnered appropriately. Let me back up. I've always believed that to build a great organization, you surround yourself with the best and the brightest and never be afraid to, you know, hire people that are smarter than you are. I've, I've done a really good job at that my entire career. Um, some would argue it wasn't that hard to do, but, um, so I've always been blessed with being surrounded by people that are are very bright and very ambitious and capable, and so as we you know built 3650, um, it was our goal to hire the best and the brightest. And there's a tendency if you eliminate sort of the off, you know the, the the cutthroat nature that sometimes our industry can breed, but it, so it, you know we have compensation systems that are designed around the success of the firm, not any one individual. Um, and, and so if you eliminate the, you know, the cutthroat element that sometimes it exists and you're all in it for, to, you know, perform at, 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 your high, at the highest levels and to succeed and win um, it's a pretty powerful, um, you know, force. And, you know, we are, Justin, Toby, and I are known for uh, our, among other things, our radical candor with with the troops. And um, so very few people are ever left wondering how we really feel. And I think that's part of, you know, um, we spend so much time in our younger years worrying about what somebody that to whom we answer or to whom they answer and the you know, person above, above, above all that. Um, and, and we try to really eliminate that so people don't, um, live in a sense of, uh, of fear or wonderment as to what's really going on, we have real-time communication, you know, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And, and I think that's really powerful. And what I'd finally say is that we really design our um, processes and procedures internally to make sure that everybody has, uh, you know, uh, the opportunity, it's more of an opportunity, it's a requirement, to speak publicly. And that includes at investment committees, um, you know, in front of their peers, in front of the people that are ultimately gonna make the investment decisions, uh, as well as, uh, you know, publicly out there at, at conferences, because that, you know, provides a really, you know, you know, whether they in the hierarchy of, you know, uh, things that make, you know, humans uncomfortable, I think public speaking is right up there at the very top. And, and so uh, we really encourage people to to uh, you know, present publicly, and we find that that's a very powerful tool in the advancement of uh, you know of a career. Great, thanks.
1: Anything to add, Justin, about yeah, training well, leaders just
3: on that on that point of speaking publicly? That it, that not only is that it, do we try and encourage that on a in a formal context, but that all of our Weekly meetings, all of our um, all of our inv- investment roundtables. Um, it, uh, ask the the people that are you know, the primary sponsors of the deals, and the and the junior guys on the team to present um, that information in front of all their colleagues, right? And so that uh, this a a a broad transference of you know the it, it, this is what this is what it takes to kind of do a good presentation and to think through all the deals you know you learn that you learn so much from watching the questions get asked Right. And thinking about, okay, what's got, what, what, when I present the next deal, what, how am I going to do it differently? Right. And that, that really can be effectively transmitted to the organization by these broad style meetings that we do, which frankly, um, you know, they, we've learned uh, something from the working from home here that, you know, just like we are right now, uh, using this Zoom call um, is a very, very effective way to, let's call it, create a dissemination of information and learning um, across the organization. Um, And so I I think there, there are other tools uh, the other things we can use that tool for. Um, one we do is we have a we have what we call a 3650 University, where we have you know, sponsored we have speakers that are experts in a particular area, whether it's uh, you know, legal background, accounting background, um, the uh, real estate from some specific um, some, some specific standpoint, um, a capital markets standpoint. Um, that trying to do these training sessions. Um, Using these new communication tools, we have is extremely effective, and so um, we're have been very pleased with the productivity and really the the performance of all of our team through the through the crisis here. Um, You know, particularly in using these tools, and I think I think everybody, I hope everybody, has learned a lot certainly i know that we think we have learned a lot so.
1: <laughs> well yeah I mean, it certainly is clear that you're you're not taking the growth and development of your team for granted it's 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 a it's a, it's a key component of what you do and what you think about as leaders and something you're continually improving refining and then executing on a on a, on a continuous basis
3: well, you've met many members of our team. You've met many members yeah. of our team. And, I, you know, I, we it, it, go ahead and take the lead is our our viewpoint. And, you know, letting people take the lead and you know, pointing out things that, hey, we got to think about this a different way is something that, um, you know, we're not shy about doing either. So, that um, that is uh, um, you know, something that's a huge focus of, uh, of how the way we run the day to day company is constantly thinking about how are we how are we create that learning process.
1: Yeah. Well, and maybe um, maybe to wrap up the conversation, since I think we're we're coming upon the time in which our listeners are uh, uh, might be getting ready to do something else, even though this has been a great conversation. Um, wonder what you are thinking about these days you know what what are the questions that you're pondering uh amid the crisis that we're all going through or beyond that that are important to answer in order to continue to succeed as as 3650 capital or just simply as individuals and justin would you like to go first
3: sure i you know one of the things that that i think we've seen observing really the difference between what's happened in this period versus what happened in the GFC period. The, the, the feds, the fed and treasury response, the government broad response um, has been a a really almost amazing magnitude um, that uh, the Clear uh, implication of that is that, or one of the implications of it, is that the, the, the intent of the, many of the Dodd-Frank post-GFC regulations totally worked. Um, and while I think it was a, it, 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 in its larger goal of making sure that the banks would not be the source of another capital markets and liquidity debacle. Um, and that, that was the case, but it came with some other, uh, let's call it consequences. I, one of consequence was, was realized, which was that, let's call it what ended up being called high volatility commercial real estate, um, it, you know, not being a large part of bank balance sheets, um, was and transferring that type of risk to private capital. Um, was something that happened um, it, it, pretty effectively, um, and the and keeping that risk out of let's call it the regulated financial system um, was very effective. But it came with some other things I, that you know, banks have been removed from their liquidity provider role to a large extent, um, and that that the that the lenders that took the took the bank's place in high volatility commercial real estate. Um, that used mismatched leverage, assumed that there would li- be liquidity there from banks that wasn't there. Um, and that was a design flaw um, that wasn't perceived. Um, and so you know, thinking about that, we were in a fortunate position because we weren't using that type of leverage. Um, and so that uh, as such um, are in a fairly strong market position today. Uh, but the, you're in, specifically talking, Justin, about the the, the
1: mark-to-market repo leverage that right. had a significant impact on the the mortgage rates that were benefiting from that pre-crisis, is that is that right, or that's correct? Thinking not, about other things, and, well? and,
3: and funds that were subject to redemptions um, that expected liquidity on you know, subordinate CMBS positions, um, right? That liquidity just wasn't there, and you know, Part of the large reason for that is is that the banks were kind of regulated out of that let's call it shock absorber role that a bank trading desk would have played in the pre in the pre crisis period. So thinking about how do we create our products and position thirty six fifty in this market um, is something that we're spending uh, a lot of time um, because we think that. Um, that there is a role for institutional capital, long-term, patient capital, because these assets, as Jonathan mentioned earlier, these are idiosyncratic assets. They are long-term assets, and they need to be matched with patient, prudently managed, prudently invested capital, um, and that it, it's not an asset class that should Ever, as I, I think consistently you've heard us say throughout this thing be overlevered or be mismatched and that is uh, and, and that is something um, and creating uh, creating strategies to fill that gap is something that we're thinking about a lot these days right seems
1: super simple it seems at least obvious that uh, that that should be the um... The, the 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 norm, but uh, clearly hasn't been. So, good luck with that, Justin. And what about you, Jonathan? What are what are you thinking about these days?
2: So you know, if you think about life uh, pre uh, COVID nineteen, real estate was um, had evolved to a point where everything was about experiential. You know, whether it be a retail center, whether it be you know a, a co living you know, building, a co-working building, a co-this, a co-that. Everything was experiential that brought humans together. And, you know, isn't it ironic that, you know, during this pandemic, you know, we've gone to great lengths as a people to do everything to stay away from other people um, to prevent, you know, the, the spread of the disease. So as we emerge through this um, and, you know, as lenders, as, I've, as I suggested before, our very best outcome is that we get our loan repaid. Uh, with interest uh, we have to be pretty darn comfortable with the value proposition of the underlying asset and you know the rate at which the use of real estate is changing I don't think has ever been more rapid than than it is right now and so as lenders you know what's keeping us on our toes is just figuring out you know looking down the path, and making sure that we have a firm understanding and belief system around the predictability of the cash flows going forward. And if, you know, if the use ends up changing or getting tweaked, we still, the value proposition is still there. But it also, you know, speaks to, we're not always gonna be right, for sure. But designing a an infrastructure, like Justin just suggested, having, you know, to the extent we use leverage, have that leverage not put a gun to our head when we have to make a decision about an underlying asset that may not be fully performing, uh, you know, because of all these changes. So I just think, you know, it's a very interesting time, you know, on a very personal level, we're all managing our, you know, our families and, and making sure that they're safe. And, you know, there's, there's a lot of, um, you know, uh, you know, a lot going on in the world today. And, you know, on top of that, we're running a business and we're running a business that's designed around not to lose money, not to lose our own money, not to lose our investors money. So, you know, it's, you know, if our job is to, you know, consistently and, you know, identify and quantify and mitigate risk, you know, over the last several months, it has just become that much more um, let's just say robust because of all the variables that are being thrown at us.
3: Jonathan, I think you right. make a really yeah. critical point in terms of the, uh, that f- as as we think about a lender, the rate of change accelerating over the past time and now not during the crisis, accelerating uh, you know, up to near light speed. And then as we emerge from the crisis, I, the, the rate of change is not going back to what it was let's call it in 2015, it's going to accelerate. And the borrowers have to be very conscious of who is your lender and what structure are you getting yourself into when we know that we're going to be facing this change for the use of real estate assets. And Sarah, having a lender that has control of uh, – and has a communication with the borrower, um, is a critical consideration, um, that real estate owners need to consider as well. And so I think that that is, that that rate of change point is in a really super important one.
1: Yeah. And both of your comments recognize that, that time is a really important variable in, um, in, in uh, how investments are going to perform you know jonathan I, I have every confidence this is my personal opinion that people are going to go back to wanting to do experiential types of things and, in in retail centers and offices and how they live that's kind of a fundamental human condition but the question is how long is that going to take right. to, to get back to the comfort period and 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 how long do you have remaining on your loan <laughs> to make sure that that is actually going to come back, you know, before maturity or, or, or with enough time for the, the borrower to catch up, and um, and and so that's it, it's incredibly difficult. I, I recognize the challenge, and um, I, th- I think we're all struggling to figure that out. But you, as a lender, more than anybody, uh, you know, to, to to really ensure that you have enough time uh in your in in, in your borrower's business plan and in your your loan to uh to to get where that you need to be
2: but taylor it's taylor sorry to interrupt but it also speaks to why so many of your clients in the investor community are seeing the relative importance of also having a lending discipline because right now to have last dollar exposure and equity, you better have a really, really compelling, um, you know, uh, return, uh, you know, pro forma to make that bet. You know, at least when we're, when we're a lender and there's a, you know, 40% cushion between us and, you know, and the equity, we can afford to take the time and, you know, for that value proposition to you know, to fluctuate. You know, given the the volatility, and so it's you know, and that's it's it's it's, it's no mystery why uh, I think you know a lot of your clients are moving you know towards towards our world to our delight. Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah. So. Yeah, good, good, good
1: point. That, absolutely, the uh, the the burn rate on the press hurdle. Uh, is a lot more impacted by time than, um, than 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 your call on the collateral potentially. So that's right. Great great point. So um, I'd like to wrap up by saying thank you very much, Justin Kennedy and Jonathan Roth for your time, uh, sharing your insights gained over. Um, many years many different experiences as investors as lenders in real estate um wish you the best uh, throughout this crisis and in the recovery uh suspect i suspect given everything that you've learned that you'll 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 not just survive but thrive coming out of this uh with uh with 3650 capital and as individuals so thank you very much
2: thank you taylor thank you taylor very much appreciate it
0: We hope you enjoyed listening to this episode of Conversations with the Best Minds in Real Estate, hosted by RCL Co. Real Estate Advisors. If you are interested in learning more about RCL Co., go to rclco.com and follow us on Twitter at RCL Co. Don't forget to subscribe to new episodes of the podcast and make sure to leave us a rating on iTunes. Thanks for tuning into the show.